Uh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming out to the 44th Annual Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. Uh, of course, this is going to be one of our panels for today here at the wonderful Orleans Restaurant. Uh, so let's give them a big round of applause for hosting us here tonight, today, today. It's st there's still a sun out. They're going to be here tonight, too. We're going to be here all day. Uh, the panel that we're doing currently right now is called Inside Dope, uh, Industry Tricks of the Trade. Basically, we're going to focus on screenwriting and distribution of movies, mostly, uh, because that is some of the tricks of the trade that are most important, uh, is getting started and then getting it shown to people. Uh, we have a lovely panel uh, of panelists. A panel of panelists? Yes, we have a panel of panelists. A murder of panelists? Is that what they're supposed to be called? A murder? A gaggle of panelists? We have a gaggle of panelists today uh, uh, who are all across the film industry with documentaries, actors, producers, writers, uh, filmmakers all across, so who will be answering some of my questions and your question. Uh, and starting here on the left, we have uh, Kelly Slagle and Brian Stillman, creators of the documentary Eye of the Beholder, The Art of Dungeons and Dragons, which just premiered last night here at the Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival. So good. And on the far end there, we have uh, actress and writer and producer and director and everything, <laughs> and every hat possible, Taryn O'Neill, uh, whose short film li Live, Live, Live. Li it could go either way, but it's <laughs> will be shown during the uh, Boston Sci-Fi Shorts series tonight. And then we have a few other uh, panels who will be joining us shortly, uh, and we will get to them and who they are when they get here. So let's just open up with a real quick, easy question uh, for people, uh, and uh, we may adjust this a little bit for the panel, but let's talk about uh, the first thing when it comes to making a film uh, for the industry, uh, whether you're a screenwriter, a producer, writer, actor. In your opinion, in this stage of 2019, film school or no? Ooh. Where do we think people should go? Do, should we be recommending film school for people or not? I did not. Is my mic on? It is on. You just got to get super close on get it. Super close. Um, I did not go to film school. I wish I had. Um, so that's my <laughs> contribution. I mean, I've been able to do directing and producing and editing without it, but I would like to have had a little bit more technical training on, on the cinematography side, and um, that would have been nice to have. Um, I come at it from a journalism background. I'm a documentary maker. Um, I was a journalist for a very long time. I did go to grad school to get... Um, I started in print for a long time, and when I transitioned into broadcast, uh, I did go back to grad school, so I got some training, um, practical training in like how to use a camera and things like that, but 90% of what I learned to do as a documentary maker, I did just you know grab a camera, go out there, and start interviewing people, um, everything from hard news to whatever, so I don't know if... I, I would have liked to have gone to film school to have learned how to do things better instead of teaching myself things, but at the same time, having not gone to film school and having done two features so far and worked in TV and stuff like that, I guess it didn't hurt me, but I had to reinvent the wheel a few times on my own when I'm sure someone out there has already done what I was trying to do easier or faster at least. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I think for some people it probably makes sense, and but probably not absolutely necessary. And Taryn, as an actress turned filmmaker, because you started as an actress first, right? Uh, do you think a film school would have been beneficial to you, or do you think you learned more on the job as an actress? And do you also think acting school or acting classes would be beneficial to any particular uh, to any potential actors? Um, to any potential directors? It, or yeah. that well as well. I think uh, directors should probably take an acting class so they learn what it is that 
they're saying to people like you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, if I'd had the chance to do like a six-month rush film school to like really imbue myself with technical um, data, that would have been great. But I spent 15 years on sets, and I've been lucky enough to work with directors like Michael Bay and the Coen Brothers. Um, and so I've seen, and these are more commercial shoots that I've done. And so I've sort of seen how these big sets work. I've worked on a lot of web series, so I saw how um, the more in low budget uh, stuff worked so I basically cross marinated that and I'd been on the producing side before too so I just didn't know what I didn't know but I reached out to filmmakers that I knew um, had done sort of more low budget stuff like I was looking to do and surrounded myself with people who um, had great technical expertise I think the most important thing when it comes to film school is learning how to tell a story on screen how to show a story how to create an experience um, and track an emotion so I don't think film school always tells you how to do that, but being on set certainly does. And actually, just, you know, one thing that I wish I was, you know, I'm DP on my films, um, and a lot of that is self-taught, and I think being in film school or being on set the way you are, you get to get exposure to what is the cameraman actually doing? What is the DP actually doing? You can ask those questions. That's something I didn't always have um, available to me that I would have liked to. And if film school can kind of give you that, there's definitely value in that, whether it's film school or on set like you were, um, or on set like you've been. Yeah, as somebody personally, me, as just the moderator, I went to school for television production, and I think in the world of TV, in the world of radio that I worked in for 20 years, going to school was beneficial mostly as a contacts uh, information. Like, I built a group of contacts of people who are all across the industry or getting in the industry. And I think with films, it's very similar in that regard. Um, and moving on, uh, I'd like to introduce one of our other panels who just joined us, Marco DeLuca, who is the uh, director of Beneath the Trees that premiered here at Boston Sci-Fi Film Festival last year at the 43rd annual. Uh, and Marco, we want to uh, ask you, as a filmmaker, do you think film school is beneficial to people who want to be who want to become filmmakers, or is it more of a learn on the job with your, or, you know, what do you think so with your experience? Well, first of all, hi. Um, so sorry for being late. Um, I'm not local, so it took me forever to get here. Got lost. Um, I, I really don't know how it works um, in the States, but I guess in Europe, actually, um, going to film school is a great um, way of... <laughs> it's a great way of um, actually start creating a network of people that first of all you'll end up working hopefully for the rest of your life um, and second um, you are for the first time exposed to industry professionals or people that can actually come up and um, ask you to do an internship I mean it's a great way of basically starting out um, I guess like everything else in life it really depends on you what you make um, out of it um, um, there are I mean, we all know there are great um, European directors that never went to school and had amazing careers. And so I, I guess like everything else, it really depends what and how you um, exploit your um, student years. 
Oh yes, I also I'd suggest there's so there's so many amazing um, sort of Criterion Collection YouTube type series where you have these and I forget his name now who does these and Tony Zhao I think it is and he does these incredible videos about the editing style of like Scorsese's movies and and it just in ten minutes I will learn so much. Um, from these YouTube videos that, you know, filmmakers even 10 years ago had no option to get this sort of information. Now, it's very democratized now online. So, I, I mean, I'm reading a book um, by Sally Potter, the director, right now, while watching, you know, um, a screenwriting video in Masterclass with um, Aaron Sorkin. And, you know, it's like I have all this input that I can basically distill down to help me be the filmmaker that I want to be. And I think that we never had that available even, yeah, five, ten years ago. I think you're talking about every frame of painting? Yes. Yes, oh, that is the so wonderful good. video essays, wonderful video essays about editing and the, the things behind. And he actually does a great job of defending Michael Bay. So if you want to figure out <laughs> how that's possible, watch every frame of paintings uh, uh, video essays. But also, there's other tutorial sites out there, like you mentioned, like Film Riot. Indie Mogul is back. Uh, yeah. They Again, uh, there's, yeah, th yeah, uh, yeah, film school, yeah, yeah. there's, no film school. Oh, no film school on YouTube. Yeah, I, the, I have some some of the. And there's actually wedding DJs who have amazing knowledge about the filmmaking process. Well, so. I was gonna say also at a convention, uh, a film festival like this, where you have access to the filmmakers, um, just hanging out in bars and stuff. If you see something that they did, and there was a shot in it that you loved, or something stylistically that you loved, walk up and ask them how they did it. You Speaking know? of I do that all the time, like how did you get that, and how did you achieve that effect, or how did you do whatever you did. And just talk about it. Speaking of notes. just walking up and asking questions, our final panelist, John Burr, here just, just arrived. Give him a big round of applause as he sits down to join the panelists. And uh, we will ask him the final question about film school or nah, or nah. Uh, if you uh, want to talk about your opinion on film school, whether you want to, where people should go to it or not, or benefits, pros, cons. Yeah, I think uh, just to reiterate what was said already, uh, it's a very personal choice. I learned a number of things that I would not have been able to learn. I had access to equipment that I would not have had access to. But if you have the opportunity, without going to film school, to work on a crew or to shadow a director or work with somebody that you might learn those skill sets from, by all means, go with that. I needed that experience to make the jump from writing features to directing them, but um, go with what works for you. All right, and excellent. We'll move on to our next question, which is uh, about can I just, the. Can I just say one? Absolutely, you can. Sure, go right ahead. Um, we we're all we're only talking about the kind of technical aspect of it, but one of the things that I love the most about um, my film school is the kind of ability to challenge you creatively, which is something that um, later on in life. Um, it probably, you know, you probably won't actually be able to have that sort of freedom. Well, there are no so stakes. The idea, you can fail. Yeah, You're yeah, free to fail. Yeah. So I, I, I found that incredibly enriching and, yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah, there we go. So film school, maybe. I think that's the uh, <laughs> what it was down to. Um, in the writing process, because we want to focus uh, here on screen uh, screenwriting and also uh, the process of distribution later on as... Uh, when writing, uh, for those who have written uh, pieces, is there a particular writing structure or outline that you favor most 
when you're writing? Because there's a lot of different methods to plot and and things out there. Like there's the three actor stru- structure. There's a uh, Freytag's pyramid. There's Joseph Campbell's twelve steps of the hero, which also turned into quickly the sixteen steps of the hero. Uh, so out of those and the other m- methods out there, is there anyone anyone in particular you favor over another? And anyone can jump in at any time. Um, I work within, I start with the three act structure, uh, but I often tend to sort of branch off from that. But um, thank you. Um, it, uh, the writing process for me is, um, it starts with uh, the, the kernel of an idea. So it starts with pitching the idea to my friends, just the log line, and then maybe an elevator pitch and seeing how people respond to it. Uh, and if, if, if they do, and, and sometimes they do not, uh, if they do not, you, you either modify it or you move on to your next idea. Uh, and then, uh, then I'll write sort of a synopsis and see how it comes together as if I were writing a short story. Uh, and then uh, I will outline it within the confines of the three-act structure. Anybody else on writing? I wish I had that discipline (laughs) (laughs) to do an outline that way. Um, I often... uh, Um, I often start with an image. I'm very image-based. A place, a person, an inner state of emotion. Um, It depends really on what I'm writing. For live, uh, I was sitting at a coffee shop in Vancouver between auditions, and the coffee shop I was in had a really interesting um, decrepit window with the paint chipping, and it was cracked open in a way, and I was like, that's an interesting image. What if I woke up? And I was seeing that image. Where would I be? And the story basically flowed out of me. Um, a lot of things I've written have been that way. And then I've had to go back. Hi. <laughs> I've had to go back and, and do the structural work to make it fit if it's a pilot or a web series or a feature. So that's where a lot of the heavy lifting have come out of. Um, I like Save the Cat a lot as a structure. Um, I, li- I like sort of I'm trying to Can remember. Can you describe what Save the Cat is for those who don't know? Like um, me. It's it's just another bullet point um, sort of structure guide that takes you through um, uh, sort of where your characters are supposed to be. It's, it's sort of a modified three-act structure, but it does a really nice um, sort of this idea of like the dark night of soul, which is very Joseph Campbell-esque as well, um, sort of in your transition between your second and your third act. Um, but if you just, it's Blake Edwards, I think it is. Do we know? I've heard. Do you remember who the writer is? Something. Blake something. Um, yeah, so if you're... Blake Snyder. Good. Yeah. Um, so I would... Uh, I Googled that, that. I found that helpful in, in places where I was having some structure problems. Um, you know, transition between second and third act, which often I have. But yeah, for me, it's very... Um, I go in flow. I come out of a meditation um, and, like, will we'll find myself in a world and start writing. Um, yes, Marco. For me, um, it's I guess I use quite a, an unorthodox way of writing because um, my everyday job is um, I'm a documentarist um, for British yeah. television. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as you know, you kind of start from a specific person or an event, um, and 
the idea of then developing a story comes, you know, yes, in bullet points, but sometimes I start writing specific scenes that mean something to me, or the idea of the scene that means something to the character, and then from that scene I start developing around um, the before and after. Um, so I usually end up with, you know, a whole wall of um, thousands of scenes, and only very few by the end actually make the um, the film. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the um, one of the, um, um, the people that came yesterday to the screening said, "Oh, the uh, the pace of your film is so bizarre, and it kind of." It feels like something is happening and then it doesn't happen, but then you feel like it did happen. And I guess it really is. It has to do with the fact that, in a way, maybe I don't necessarily use the three-act structure and therefore I kind of, yeah, make some sort of hybrid. <laughs> like, whatever comes out is kind of different. I mean, for ours, so much of it was built in the edit. I mean, Kelly, you can talk about how you organized it and built our structure. Yeah, I mean, this, it's it's not screenwriting in the strictest sense when it's... it's it, it is it's creating the story in in the edit um, so what we did was we basically identified uh, subjects um, that we wanted to talk about um, uh, about the artwork and would rearrange the subjects so we would make a, a subject be a story unto itself and then we would rearrange those stories around other stories and so that's that's the, the heart of creating a documentary without a script, um, without narration. We didn't have narration in our documentary. So um, creating a story out of stories is the best way to put it. Uh, and John, you already mentioned it earlier, so this is a great point to bring this up, is what do you think goes into a good pitch or a good elevator pitch slash log line? Uh, first of all, knowing when is a good time to pitch something. Um, you often hear advice, always be pitching, but that is not the case. You don't want to turn off people by being the guy that's inappropriately talking about his next film <laughs> at a social gathering. But It's the same thing. I, I come up in the stand-up comedy world, so it's the same thing as, like, don't always be doing bits in front of people. Just be a human. But, yeah, uh, similar. Absolutely, yeah. Develop a relationship. Be, be a human is a good way to put that. But when you are given the opportunity to pitch your idea... Um, Find a uh, find a brief way of describing it. Um, give the log line. Give the very essential plots that that contain maybe one element that will hit somebody emotionally, but will also give the an idea of the genre, an idea of the journey of the character, and that's it. And then if they ask to hear more, then have your slightly longer elevator pitch ready for them. Uh, and and you know know it. Know your story. Know what you're doing. Tr try not to tell some meandering story where you're sort of figuring it out as you go along. Um, practice it to people that know and love you that you won't turn off by saying it to when they uh, when you don't quite know what you're saying yet and uh, so just be ready be prepared be passionate uh, and and don't say too much say just enough to, to keep them interested uh, and and Kelly and uh, 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 Brian what was the uh, for someone who's not familiar with D&D &D, what was in your log line or uh, your pitch, yeah. uh, your elevator pitch, like your well, two-sentence pitch to some producer who did not know what D&D &D is that would make them want to, you we know, didn't. So we, we in theory. It. I mean, we did, it's, it's a little different for us because we did everything um, ourselves, essentially, to make it. And to get distribution and stuff, we presented a finished movie to someone who I'd been having conversations with already. But that said, um, 
I pitched the idea to Kelly and our third partner, Seth, um, because I wanted to work with them. And um, it was really just, hey, we, in our case, it was, hey, we all love Dungeons and Dragons and the art's really cool. Let's make a movie about it. <laughs> um, but what I, what I was going to say is I have pitched other documentaries. I'm working on some other stuff on the side now. I've worked with other people. I've talked to other documentarians. And the thing about pitching a documentary is you want to look for the story um, and pitch the story on a couple levels. One, the big picture level. How does it apply it to the world today? Why is this a story that needs to be told now? But also, what's the human level? Um, you are often using small stories to tell bigger stories, or sometimes you're telling a bigger story um, and showing how that can connect to people on a smaller personal level. So when you approach your pitch, um, you don't want to just be like, you know, this thing is the biggest thing in the world and everyone's talking about it. How does it connect? How does it connect to you? Why are you the person to tell that story? Um, when you're pitching it, if you can include, you know, like, and yeah, I'm a gamer. I grew up with Dungeons and Dragons and the art. I mean, not the best example, but whatever. Um, looking for those little things that show why you're the person who can make, who can tell this story, why it'll speak to a big audience, because whoever you're pitching it to obviously wants it to be seen, but also why it's not so big that it leaves people cold. They, they want to know that it has a personal connection or there's a way to kind of humanize it. The other thing I'd say is be aware of timeliness when you're pitching documentaries. What's going on in the world today, if, if it's that type of documentary, that makes your story relevant at that moment, um, or at least by the time it comes out. Um, those are sort of the elements to think about when putting together your pitch, um, and arguably when thinking about what you might want to make a movie about. Uh, Taryn, uh, out of curiosity, you've been in a lot of films. What are some of the things that you've heard uh, pitch in, you know, in, in, in Elder Patriots and Log Lines that made you want to be part of a project as an actress and now turned filmmaker? That they were going to pay me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I got to pitch for a movie. You get paid. <laughs> yes. Score. Um, well, I mean, for for me as an actor, it's really important too. Um, uh, I, I actually right now won't do a, a project unless it's a because um, I'm focusing more on the writing and the directing, um, unless the character is something I've never done before and is empowering to be as a female. I won't do some stereotypical cookie cutter, you know, grieving wife role or you know. I just I, I won't do that. I really one of the reasons I'm a filmmaker now is, and we're all here for sci-fi, is because I believe that we're you know at this transition point where we need narratives that address the technological issues that we're going to be facing in the future, and that's the best story is the best way we can condition people's brains to 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 be prepared for it. Um, so. Yeah, um, if something is innovative and if there's a log line that shows a journey that hasn't been done before and through a perspective that hasn't been told from before, then I'm interested. And Marco, do you have anything that about log lines? Well, to be honest. Um, and I'm horrible at them, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really think that the main thing is to. Um, really believe in the core idea that you're pitching. Um, you are the first one that has to completely, um, undeservingly, and you need to really believe in what you are telling other people, and you have to believe it works. Um, so I would say, you know, whatever idea, just don't go in and pitch it if you're not 100% sure that that's, first of all, what you really want to be doing, because 
we all know how long it takes from the original idea to the actual um, delivery. Um, so you need to really, yeah, to just really believe in it. Um, and in the filmmaking distribution process, there is so many legal terms and technical phrases that are daunting for someone who's not familiar with the process. So if there's certain things like uh, there's um, you know LLCs, copyrights, intellectual property, all these words that are out there. If the, through the panelists, can you explain some of these terms for people who will be hopefully, if they have a you know successful film in the future that has distribution, some the definition of what some of these terms mean and the process of going from uh, having to deal with what you're signing away, what you're going to get back um, through at least your experience and in layman's terms. My my first piece of advice would be to marry a lawyer because that's what I did. <laughs> Um, and he, he's the third filmmaking partner that's not here with us. Uh, so we had a little bit of an inside edge on, on, on the uh, filmmaking process. But in all seriousness, if you if you Can we have, call your husband and have him describe what LLC yeah, means? He and would actually probably do it if we called him right now. Um, get a lawyer. Get a, get the, 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 point, a the point is, is to have, have a lawyer. Or you know, if you have a friend who happens to be a lawyer, great. If not, spend, find the money for, uh, for legal help in this process, because it's, it's daunting otherwise. Um, you want to form an LLC. Um, at the very least, you want to protect yourself by, by forming an umbrella company above what you're doing, um, and to protect your assets uh, separate from, from uh, the film. You don't want to be personally responsible for anything. You don't want your own personal bank accounts involved in this process. Uh, so and you, just wh what's a worst case scenario if you don't create an LLC or what an umbrella company? What's just so, so people just know. So you know, an LLC is a corporation that you form that is um, in its simplest, most non-legal sort of terms, the LLC is a company you form of yourself or of you and a couple partners, and any lawyers in the room are going to be like, this is not a perfect definition, and I agree. But what it's essentially doing is separating for, for our intents and purposes, it's separating your assets, your personal assets, from your movie's assets, um, from your film company's assets, from everything. Like We formed an LLC for our particular movie because that way, if we get sued or if there's any problems where people can attack the assets of our film, they cannot attack the assets of our other film, our production companies, or our personal assets. We don't lose our house. So you want to have that in place. Um, plus, you can then open like a business bank account and all these other things. Um, so you want to meet with uh, a lawyer and get that set up. Um, and it differs from state to state, the process you go through to do that. It's usually very easy. When your taxes are due, it's usually very easy because if you're um, the sole owner of the LLC, it's just you paying taxes. It's all very simple, but it offers a ton of protection. Um, the other thing you mentioned, copyright. Copyright's important. Get your movie copyrighted. They always talk about things are copywritten by the act of creation. That's true, but you need to defend your copyright. And you can do that more easily if you register your film. Um, through the United States, through the copyright offices and things like that. Again, it's not hard to do. Your lawyers can walk you through that. But you want to do all those things as soon as you have a finished product, um, or sooner if it's possible, to, to get this stuff protected. Because when you enter into the world of distribution, you're talking to companies who are going to put your film out there who have lawyers. And they're your partners on this. But at the same time, they're going to try and create a contract that's most beneficial to them. Um, they're not necessarily out to screw you. I mean, it really is a partnership with your distributor if you're with a reputable company. But you want to be able to look at the contract and say, well, here's areas where we can get more stuff 
than we're currently being given. Um, and here's where we can sweeten the deal on our side. And in all likelihood, your distributor is going to have wiggle room in the contract that they give you. Your lawyer is going to be able to identify those things. Um, they're going to be able to look at the contract and say, well, this little clause in here means that you can't do X. Are you sure you want to give that up? Whatever that may be. Um, you know, Seth found a whole bunch of stuff for us, and I'd been through it before, and I knew what to look for, but our lawyer still found things or was able to push other things or reword things that ultimately give you protection. Um, so you want to make sure you, you get someone who knows that stuff and you look out for those things. Uh uh, has anyone else had an experience with uh, having to go through the legal process process of of uh, distribution that you would warn somebody out? Like, is there is did you make a mistake the hard way when it came to distribution? Is there something that you learned the hard way that you want to pass on knowledge wise to future filmmakers? I almost did. <laughs> um, so my first documentary was about Star Wars toys. It's called Plastic Galaxy, and I. I put this thing out with no, I had no idea what I was going to do with it. I just knew I was going to put out DVDs and sell them through Amazon. And I got a call one day from a company that says, hey, we can distribute your movie. We can get it into big box stores. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. I've already made my money back through my Amazon sales. So anything I do is gravy. And um, it'd be cool to see it in Best Buy and whatever. And the deal they were offering, I'd get something like $3 a disc, $2 a disc for every sale, um, and they would offer an upfront minimum guarantee, which means they basically give you money in advance and they recoup that. It's uh, like an advance if you're an author. And I said, okay, um, I want, based on the numbers you're giving me, 5000 bucks. which to me, if they were going to sell as many, if they were as confident as they seem to be, it wouldn't be too hard. And they came back and they said, well, 2000 I said, you know, I don't know. It doesn't sound worth it to me. I talked to some other people, and they raised the good point that if I sign this deal, how long is my weird little documentary going to be on the stands at Best Buy? When they have, you know, their racks are four feet long and they're filled with Marvel movies, how long is my documentary even going to be there? And I'm signing away all sorts of rights to allow them to do that. Digital distribution rights, the ability to sell it myself on Amazon, all these other things. So I passed on it. And about a month after that, I got a digital distribution deal from a company that was willing to pay me 75% of what they earn. So if Amazon, you know, if you buy a movie for five bucks on Amazon, um, this company, the distributor gets four, I get three of it. That adds up really fast. Um, and I'll, it allowed me to keep the physical media rights so I could still sell my disc individually on Amazon or wherever I wanted. A much better deal than this first company was offering. I was willing to take that first deal, though, because I didn't know any better, because I hadn't done enough research. I hadn't understood the potential these days that our movies have. We don't have to be with like Universal Pictures or anything to get our stuff out there. There are outlets out there that can be really profitable and really easy for us to do. I didn't know any of that. So I almost signed away all my rights, essentially, for five years, and I would have made a fraction, like an inconsequential fraction of what I ended up making because I luckily waited for a better deal. But if they had told me they would have given me that $5,000 minimum guarantee, I would have taken that deal and I would have been kicking myself if someone told me what I'd given up. So that was almost a disaster. Uh, Marco, I'm curious, uh, in when it comes to distribution, because you've made films in Europe, and I assume you've had some distributed here in America, is there a difference that you've had to do with getting films shown in Europe and shown in America? Well, actually, um um, the this one beneath the trees, um, it's a bit of a different beast. I mean, we just finished it in um, we just finished it in November. It's 
just been presented here for the first time. It's a, it was our first screening um, yesterday. Um, and now it's basically in the hands of different sales agents, possible distributors. So it's all still a bit of a question mark. Um, and when I say distributors and sales agents, I'm talking Europe. So it'll be nice to start looking on this other side of the pond as well and see what comes out of it. Um, so yeah, at the moment, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask. <laughs> What's a sales question, agent? Because so. we went straight to a distributor, mm. and they end up selling the movie to the different streaming services. So Amazon, iTunes, PlayStation, Netflix, wherever. That's how they do it. But I know a sales agent is different than that, right? Well, a sales agent um, also takes care of the of selling it to different territories. So um, it might not necessarily be just a UK, although when it comes to digital, it's all a little bit more of a yeah. bland. Um, but uh, you know, it might go on digital in the UK, and it might actually be distributed in theaters in Germany. Do you know? And that's something that only a sales agent can actually do, because they've got contacts, because they go around um, major hubs and major festivals, and they actually sell your films because they take a percentage of that. Um, so yeah. So they're like a step before a distributor. Before the distrib they get it to distributors who get it. Uh, see, even we're learning stuff. But I think what all this shows is that the distribution system is constantly evolving, especially because of digital and streaming right now. Yeah. You think of music, and I was reading an article that said that in 2015, 75% um, of revenue was from digital downloads, where 75% of revenue in 2018 is from streaming services. Think of that discrepancy, that change just over three years in the music industry. So movies, I'm sure there is a parallel track of that. So I mean, I was on the producing side of a couple sci-fi web series, and one we sold to this now defunct UK distribution site. And you know, one thing that really bit us in the ass was that we had no idea the deliverables that we really were responsible for. We were a bunch of little indie filmmakers making a cute sci-fi series that we thought we were paying a decent amount of money for. And then when we realized what we had to deliver and the metadata and all this stuff, and we're like, well, what? What do we have to do? So there is a learning curve it's every huge. six months when it comes to where things are being distributed and how the companies are evolving because no one has quite yet figured out how to make money from digital distribution unless you're one of the big guys. I mean, but still even then, like think of how many digital companies have folded um, from the machinimas to the atoms to, you know, so they're constantly trying to make money off of this content and screw the filmmaker out of it. So you really have to be aware of what these models are. Uh, and since you brought up streaming services, uh, in your opinion, if somebody came to you say, hey, look, I made a film, I have two options for, for distribution, theatrical release or video on demand. That's what they're offering them. They get to choose one or the other. In your opinion, as filmmakers who have been across the gambit of films, what, do you, what would you recommend to that person asking you, should I take the theatrical deal or should I, do I have better options with video on demand or streaming services? I don't think that's actually. I think it's, it's, that, it's, a, it's too a, loaded a question. I don't too, think you can be that hypothetical with it because okay. for certain movies, look, if they're coming to you and offering you theatrical distribution, like broad scale, real theatrical distribution, you are playing on a level that is so different than. Like, I don't know why you're here right now. We should be asking you how you did that. Because, it, like, that's 
the only way you're going to get distributed that widely in movie theaters. If you're talking about someone saying, we'll get you into like these three theaters, we can hook you up with these three theaters, I'd say go for digital. You'll make way more money and you'll have way more people see it, I think. Um, so I think no one's going to come along... If you're getting wide distribution in movie theaters, you're also going to get digital. You're also going to get a giant house. You're also going to make a lot of money. And it's a totally different conversation. And can I give you my card, please? <laughs> I don't know, unless someone else has no. more insight knowledge. Well, uh, let's do it as uh, from the perspective of where do you think there's going to be more audience who will see the movie? Because you can release something in, in, in you know a thousand screens and nobody sees it because nobody goes to movies anymore in your opinion whereas video on demand hey if they're offering you Netflix and Amazon Prime yes but if they're offering you Vudu yeah, maybe that's very not well the best plan. Uh, I, you know, uh, I'm just—I don't think most people know what voodoo is. That's why I don't know. Uh, you guys have more experience in it, so it's kind of under that perspective. Where do you think they ha might have better success in theaters? Or, but you brought up a good point of what the scale is. So, but John, you were saying the same. Even a limited theatrical release uh, often relies on performance. If you if you pack the theaters or pack a theater, you will be extended oftentimes, and it can often uh, trigger automatic digital release. Uh, deals with certain platforms. If you perform well, then you are more likely to make it onto Netflix. So That's true. I, I think that you one one would always want to opt for some sort of theatrical release first. Just, and I think 99% of filmmakers would want to see their, their work on a big screen with like a good surround sound speaker system, uh, if, if only for sort of the way that that feels and the, yeah. that's the way that you want your work to be seen. But it's uh, not an either or situation. Well, You'd be doing one to trick well, it. Me, might, I it can might say be this. either or if you chose to go digital first, you can't always go back to theatrical, but yeah. the other way around doesn't actually happen that way. If you go theatrical, then you will probably get some sort of this digital Right, but I'm digital. saying you're not going to decide to do one instead no, of the other. You're right. doing that theatrical thing with the digital in mind down the road. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, because, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, don't turn down the opportunity to show your movie in a screen. But it's not a, I don't think it's a choice you're making between the two. It's sort of like, I want it all, right. ideally. You want eyes on your film. Yeah, yeah as much as possible. And I can, I, I, as personally, as an actor who's done a few movies, uh, very few movies, mostly I just stand off to the side, out of focus. But there's been, I can say, personally, when you see yourself on the big screen, it is much... Uh, more heartfelt than seeing yourself. Like, I've seen myself on my TV screen, on a computer screen, on my phone, and then I saw myself at the Somerville Theater a couple months ago for The Man Who Killed Hitler and uh, and then The Bigfoot. And I saw myself and I was like, ooh. Like, so there is something to be said to seeing yourself on the big screen compared to just seeing it on screen. Because when I saw myself in I Feel Pretty or when I saw myself in uh, Castle Rock, I thought nothing of it. And then when I saw myself on the big screen in the Somerville Theater, I went, ooh, and that was an emotion that I had not expected. So yeah, there is that, you bring up a good point of that, is there's also a personal aspect, I assume, that is beneficial to seeing your movie play in a crowd of people as opposed to just seeing a thumbnail on Netflix, so. Anything to add from anyone else? There's a cognitive reason for that. Oh, okay. Just. When it, it actually, they're, they're figuring out it harkens back to neural pathways that are established when you're a baby and you see someone related to you in a larger format. And so that's where the endorphin or the um, dopamine rush comes from. See, that's much more smart. That's so much smarter of an answer I could ever come up with because I did six years of community college. I'm a dummy, so. 
But uh, and then we'll we'll move on to one more question, and then we'll open it uh, to the Q and A for our for our uh, audience there. Um, I think I had one more question, didn't I? The adult. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. We want to change the panel to the conversation. No, we're going to do this. That's really fascinating. Uh, oh, let's just do this one question because I, I skipped the question for scre screenwriting and what it comes to is, and I think a lot of people ask this question, uh, and I think I know the answer, but I'd rather hear from you guys, is how do you get past uh, writer's block? Because some, pe some people have different methods. They go for a car, they go for a car ride, they take a shower, or they just write vomit until they find something uh, to come up with. So in your experiences as writers, uh, who, those who have written, how do you deal with writer's block? Personally, I just um, watch films. When I don't know, when you know, I'm in front of the computer, and I feel like you know, I'm nothing. Like I'm empty, you know, completely. Then I just, um, I just start watching films as many as I can, and it kind of inspires me, and it gives me insights into even you know. And usually, I try to watch films that are completely different from what I'm actually writing about so that I feel that my mind is actually kind of flying away somewhere else and at the same time it's a different way of being stimulated, inspired and it very often works. Um, the most effective thing that I've found is give yourself a deadline. Uh, and there are mm -hmm. so many ways to do that, and there are cool ways to do that. You can find a screenwriting contest or a film festival that you want to submit your screenplay to, and then you have a date that you have to have it finished by. And then that will make you power through the scenes and the times that you don't want to write because you know you have to have it finished at a certain point. Uh, and then you can go back and rewrite and polish, but it will take the sort of perfectionist part of your brain out of the matter that, that makes you think, I can't do this right now because it's not perfect. You will, you will have to do something, and then you will fix the parts that need to be fixed. But give yourself that deadline. Everything that he just said. <laughs> um, I, I, I wouldn't say I ever have writer's block because I have too many ideas that are assaulting me, but I definitely am a procrastinator, where I just have moving into the scene and getting it on paper um, uh, in some instances. And so meditation helps for me to get me into the zone um, and into flow, but a deadline or like a dragon fire breathing here being like, do it! I'm like, okay. <laughs> uh, and then finally, we'll open the, the, the questions up to them, but I will sum up with uh, a quote from a good uh, friend of mine who's also a stand-up comedian, and he says, when it comes to things like writer's block or fear of going on stages, your inner critic is an asshole. So if you always think of that, if you just use that inner critic as an asshole, uh, that phrase or that, that quote, uh, I think that may help people. So if there's anybody in our audience there who has a question for our panelists, uh, please feel free to stand up and I will come to you with a microphone and I'll put it approximately in your face where everyone can hear you. So don't all jump up at once. Who is the first person that would have a question uh, about our film panelists? No, we have a young lady back here with a question. <laughs> Hi, thank you all for being on the panel. Um, sort of in the same vein as writer's block, if you have an idea and you sort of have the bare bones of the idea and not necessarily know how it may end, how it may begin, you just have maybe just one snippet, how do you build from that so that it makes sense and is one whole cohesive piece? Um, and what is sort of the process that you come to that and, and have you ever found that it's it ends up being something that you never even intended on 
doing, it just sort of became its own beast. Uh, thoughts, questions, comments? So yeah, the writing process, starting it with one thing and then ending it coming into something you didn't uh, expect it to become. I think that was the summarization. Steven, Sp- not Steven Spielberg, Stephen King in his book on writing writes to that. Um, he really doesn't know how his books are going to end. Now this isn't script writing per se, um, but often if you have the kernel of an idea um, and you see a place, you see a person, write a short story about it. Like create the world, figure out, okay, well, what is, what does he, just the bare bones that as an actor or a writer, you go, what do they want? What is the conflict? Why can't they get what they want? Because conflict Conflict is story. Um, so I think that just expounding on that journey, that world, and then you'll find things in it that, oh, maybe that could lead to that. And you set little kernels along the way. Um, and then you can go back and revisit it and then build a structure from there. So I don't think doing anything in one false swoop, maybe Stephen King can do it, but I don't think very many other people can. But just getting your story down on paper because an idea expressed is what's important. I'd agree with that, but also um, you know know your characters, sort of know what their arc might be, and a great piece of writing advice that I got was that your protagonist should either get what he or she wants or what he or she deserves. So know that that, that is the expectation, and that's what will feel satisfying to the audience, and then every now and then you can play with that expectation, but just sort of know the parameters of what you're telling. Does any of our audience members also have another question? There's a gentleman right here. Sorry, I'm an accountant. <laughs> so I, I, I'm wondering how, the LLC how early in the process do you start to think about how you can monetize it? I'm sorry. <laughs> it yeah. kind of runs against the creative process, but I think it's an important part and a consideration. Absolutely. I mean, we yeah, no, we, you guys have bills to pay, so at what point yeah. do you start thinking about how do I pay those bills with this bills? We, I mean, we knew we were going to look for distribution. Like a lot of people that I know who make documentaries are like, well, I'm just going to make it, then we'll see what happens. But because of the experience I had on my earlier movie, I knew that this is like a real possibility for a small indie documentary about a very nerdy subject can get out there. It can be done. So I think from the beginning, we were talking about it um, and figuring out what we might want to do. Yeah, from the very beginning, we and I've heard many people have advice where you think about your distribution before you even do the film um, and how you want it to be seen and 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 what the the, the scope of it's going to be. Um, we actually did crowdfunding campaign for our film, so we made a conscious decision to to do that. Um, right at the beginning of the post process um, for us. Uh, so yeah, it, it, you have to consider the distribution earlier on, um, I think, in order to fully take advantage of it. And part of that's being aware of like what the money, you, know, you talk about monetizing it. Well, I knew the distribution deal that we would likely be going for based on what I had done earlier, based on deals I had seen friends make like right around the time we were making ours. Like I knew, um, I also have no problem talking numbers generally with the projects I've done because I think too many people keep too many things close to the vest and it doesn't help anybody. So without getting super specific, I knew that that 75%, 25% split was something we wanted and I knew it was perfectly reasonable to ask for with our distributor. I had gotten it with my previous movie. A friend of mine had just gotten it with her movie. Um, and when our distributor came back to us with a different split, it was like 65, yeah. 35 or something like that. Does that equal enough? Yeah, 65, 35 um, with a like $10,000 minimum guarantee. We were like, that's cool and all, 
but that's not in line with what we were envisioning going into this. And that's not in line with what we feel um, we need to make the work we put into it, the money we've put into it, worthwhile. Because um, we'll just we'll starve to death. Um, so we pushed to get the deal we wanted and went back and forth and got it. And the minimum guarantee went down, but that's recoupable money anyway, so we didn't really care. Nice to have, but we knew we'd get it eventually in the long run. Um, so there was an awareness of the numbers that we'd eventually be looking at. Um, that said, I don't think we were super frugal when we were making the movie, so we probably were not paying attention to what it's likely to earn in the end as we were spending money, which is, if we actually had an accountant, that might freak them out. But the nice thing about not having I an accountant is available. it doesn't, uh. no, 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 the best thing about not having an accountant is, no one cares, you can run wild with your money. Uh, somebody actually, who's too embarrassed to ask their question on uh, on the mic, texted me their question, uh, and it goes along with the accounting and distribution money and that, uh, as a filmmaker, what are certain things that are tax write-offs? Because uh, as an actress, we know costuming, classes, stuff like that. There's not a lot of write-offs. Anymore. Not anymore. Not uh, there is the tax code. Yeah, with the tax code, anything that's a W-2 is not. There are no. You can't take. Only if you're getting a W-2 on yeah. that. Correct. And almost every paycheck as an actor, I get. As an a, actor, yes. A W-2. I yeah. found out this year. I. Interesting. Yeah, mostly photography does 1099s. Acting does, uh, like modeling stuff does 1099s. So with a lot of acting stuff, I found out this year myself as an actor are all W-2. So I had to cancel out a lot of things. And luckily, all my comedy m monies, uh, <laughs> I was able to write off the expenses for that. But uh, but as filmmakers, though, in general, what things would be tax write-offable? Because some people uh, don't know that uh, a Netflix account Right. As are, is is considered research purposes. So certain things that you know that you're like, hey, here's something you didn't know as a filmmaker you could potentially write off on your taxes since we're also in the middle of tax season. I think that's also an appropriate question to ask. Um, uh, you can write off things like, you know, I have a Vimeo account so I can upload uh, files for my partners to review uh, cuts of the film on, um, you know, a Vimeo Pro account. So we write, we write that off, for example. Um, you write off uh, your computer expenses if you're doing the editing work yourself. Um, home, office. And home office expenses, absolutely. Um, uh, insurance expenses um, for your production, things like that. Legal, um, legal fees, yeah, not as much on our, our end, but. Uh. Well, it also depends though, like, so you're getting a W-2. One of the reasons you have the LLC set up is you create this company and the comp company is getting these write-offs. That's, that's what I meant, the company um, is getting the write-offs, yeah. But you can do that because you have an LLC. If you're an actor, and I guess it's a W-2 because you're getting paid by whatever employment hey, service they have yeah, set up, um, it's very different. But if you're getting a 1099, if this is your, if you're a freelance cameraman and you're getting hired to do this, or if you're making your own film and you set up an LLC and all these things are part of your business expenses, I mean, we did a movie about D&D art I wrote off all my gaming stuff That's because you need it for A, research, because it's a documentary. B, I need to scan in all the art so it's actually production materials. And these are things my accountant told me to do. Like, it didn't even occur to me. When I was making the Star Wars movie, my accountant goes, oh, and you wrote off all your Star Wars toys for your collection because you use those in the movie, right? And I went, I can do that? <laughs> and my wife sitting next to me just went, oh no. <laughs> I was like, chains are off. Um, but you can do that and it's act it's legit. It's not just me taking advantage of it. The fact that I'm gonna use these gaming things later is irrelevant. Um, but 
there's a lot of leeway, but it's all production expenses. I mean, you have to really talk to your accountant about this and really make sure you understand the sort of systems that you've set up in which you're doing these deductions. Like, I, I totally forgot. I didn't know that you guys were W-2. That's... This new tax code, man. Yeah, no, two years ago, oh, I didn't have the problem. Uh, and then this year, because I think two years ago, I my, my acting expenses or my acting payments came in under necessity to send in a W-2. So I didn't get W-2s two years ago for the couple productions I was on, like three of them. This year, I have nine different productions, which I'm sure it's much higher for you, but just standing in the background, I got nine different W-2s. I think I had something like 13 W-2s for my taxes this year between acting and all the other things. So, but uh, is there any, John, would you like to add something? You got a bunch of filmmakers up here. You have an accountant right there. I feel like we should. Yeah. 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 These questions. Please help. Have, have we said anything that's off base yet? No, no, not at all. I'm less familiar from the UK. Right. So, so less familiar. So you're just hiding gold doubloon, like gold <laughs> under your, you know, something like that. I don't know. Uh, less familiar Hogwarts. with U.S. tax codes, but uh, the LLC stuff completely rings true. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll take one final question from the audience, and then we uh, will wrap up the panel. And then, if anybody would, uh, if there's any other questions you have, feel free to. Uh, uh, ask our filmmakers afterwards. We'll be hanging around, and I think we have another panel following. So I think that gentleman raised his hand first. We'll get close to him with this microphone through all these shares. Are there any tricks of the trade specific to science fiction filmmaking or genre filmmaking? And that's from concept to production to distribution, all the way through. <laughs> so that it. So that it works. Okay. Um, what, something that I learned as an indie filmmaker when I was a producer of a couple of sci-fi web series was big ideas in small locations. Because genre, trying to make genre on your own when you don't have a big studio and you don't have a huge budget behind you, leaves you like with a minefield because it just you know you you don't have a whole lot of money and you're supposed to be doing you know special effects and potentially set in the future and you know what does sci-fi mean to you so finding out what the kernel of why you're doing sci-fi is like what is that social construct you're looking to examine what is that journey and why is sci-fi the best genre to do that and so I think once you find that then finding the sort of bare necessity to create the sci-fi around it um, I, I've seen a lot of really really cool short films that um, have like super cool special effects where they called in a lot of favors but there's no story and there's no character and I don't yeah. care so you know and then sometimes these directors they're like they get a big movie option but then nothing goes because they just they missed telling the story initially has there been anything at the festival you've seen that you use as an example or anything that you've seen like on Netflix or you know, either feature short uh, that I can recommend. I'll have to think about that. I, so I, I have one that was not playing oh, this their festival. Stuff. I loved their D and D. Their <laughs> so very different. An example of what she was just saying. There's a there's a film called The Sound of My Voice that was a Sundance film a few years ago. Britt Marling. Yes, with Britt Marling, and it's about someone who is runs a cult because she claims she's from the future, and so the idea is that she's a time traveler, but. The entire sci-fi idea is put forth in her performance as she describes things that she knows. So you don't need some big visual effects heavy movie to do this. This is an independent film that they primarily shot in their neighbor's basement. Uh, but it's a brilliant concept and it relies on the performance of the lead actress. And her other film, Another Earth, very similar. Oh, yeah. 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 
I saw a short. Actually, to speak to that, I saw a short two nights ago, and I, I wish I could remember the title of it, and I apologize, but um, it was all about this young girl and her friend spending their last night hanging out together and you don't understand why um, until the very end when you realize one of the girls is going off on a generational ship and she's going to be in space for the next 237 years. She's going to grow up and die. Yes. Um, that was brilliant. And the science fictional concept doesn't come in till the very end and it's just sort of explained to you. But that was some of the most powerful science fiction I've seen in, in ages. And it left, it was the end of the block, and I didn't know whether I was supposed to sort of be uplifted by the sort of the sense of adventure that she has, or utterly depressed by the fact that she's leaving everything on Earth behind forever. Um, and it was powerful and beautiful, and it was shot just around town at night. Like, there's no special effects or anything. And it was wonderful. So I think that gets really to what you guys are saying, just keeping it small and, and focused and really knowing that idea. To make yeah, and that short is, just uh, real quick, the short is called Anna Katerna, and it's playing uh, during the shorts tonight at the Summerville Theater in the Marco Cinema. It's so good. And you were going to say there, Marco? I'm sorry. No, just to, to make uh, just um, uh, to make great sci-fi, you don't necessarily need um, huge VFX. You need a good story. You need good characters, and that's way more important than having you know explosions and um, aliens. I mean, ET. I think the biggest special effect in ET was making the bicycle fly. Like throughout the rest of it, it's really just people and sets and uh, yeah. plywood and nails and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Spielberg initially um, wrote E.T. without E.T. It was just a divorce movie. Mm -hmm. It was a family drama. And then he was like, wait, I'd had this idea about this little alien and it was <laughs> added in like towards pre-production. So. All right, uh, and that's going to wrap up our panel for today. Let's give our panelists again a big round of applause. Kelly Sago and Brian Stillman, creators of the documentary Eye of the Beholder, The Art of D&D. Taryn O'Neill, whose uh, short film Live? Live. Live. <laughs> I'm just going to keep throwing copper every time I get that wrong. Uh, <laughs> it will be tonight during the shorts. Uh, again, writer-director of Muse, John Burr, and Marco DeLuca, director of Beneath the Trees, which is on Amazon Prime right now, correct? Nope. Oh, I'm sorry. John Burns, your movie's on Amazon. Didn't I just not? Yes, yeah, sorry. I got that. This is why I write notes down. You can see Muse on Amazon Prime right now. Uh, and Beneath the Trees was here at the film festival last year. So again, yesterday. Sorry. Thank you guys so much for being here and being a part of this. Uh, I'm going to go take a nap. Good night. Bye. <laughs>